This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. In 2008, Michael Horn, Clay Christensen, and Curtis Johnson wrote a book entitled Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns. In this book, they claim that within a decade, a majority of students would be learning online. And many commentators laughed at the claim, even I did. I joke that you should never give a number and a date in the same sentence. You'll certainly be wrong. But Michael had the last laugh. Here we are in 2020, and a majority of students are learning online, if they're learning at all. Indeed, nearly every child in the country is learning online. Well, today I have with me on the Education Exchange, Michael Horn, now a distinguished fellow at the Christensen Institute, to discuss with me just what we are learning from the transformation of American education over the last few weeks. So Michael, we're just a few weeks into school closings. The President of the United States has said that the lockdown is gonna continue past Easter until the end of April, and who knows how much further beyond that do you think the schools are closed for the rest of the academic year? Well, for, first, Paul, good to be with you. And, and second, when Clay Christensen and I made our prediction uh, that 50% of all high school courses delivered online, we did not model in pandemic as one of the reasons. So uh, it's a strange set of circumstances we find ourselves in today. But to your question, I expect that uh, K-12 schools will be closed through the rest of the year. I, I find it very unlikely uh, that they will reopen uh, for a few weeks at the very end. I think given everything that we're seeing, uh, we have not seen the worst of this and uh, the excellent writing that John Bailey has been doing in Education Next around the need for uh, social distancing for children in particular who are uh, great at uh, uh, basically spreading this disease, but not necessarily showing the symptoms of it, suggests that uh, out of an abundance of caution at the very least, we won't uh, see schools uh, resume uh, by the end of June. So we certainly have had a disruption. Uh, one third of the school year about has been lost, but schools say they're, trans, they're, they're moving education online. So what is, we're now two, three weeks into this. What's, what's it look like now that it's really happened? What do you what do you hear? What do you see? What do you know? Yeah, I mean it's been fascinating to watch. Frankly, states and districts are taking so many different approaches. Uh, there seems to have been a lot of confusion over guidance around uh, can you serve any students if you're not able to serve all students? For example, special needs uh, students and things of that nature. And uh, we've seen states like Oregon say you cannot transfer into a full-time virtual school. In fact, full-time virtual schools cannot operate because other schools cannot uh, uh, be serving their students, which is unbelievably absurd and, and, and disheartening. Uh, uh, and we've you know, seen some districts and states fly into action and distribute laptops. South Carolina famously now bringing buses around with Wi-Fi connectivity so students can get online. And then everything in between as well, where schools are saying, hey, we're going to have some online touch points, uh, but there's going to be a fair amount of remote learning. And we acknowledge that what you do at home is it's not school. We're not going to try to replicate it. And uh, we hope you invest in a couple of deep projects and do something constructive with your time and connect occasionally with some classmates and a teacher online. But that's about it. And so it's an unbelievable spread of response uh, to this, this moment in time. I'll say the other thing that's been so interesting to me is how many providers 
really high quality providers, you know, ST Math, uh, Zern, uh, Khan Academy, of course, already free, uh, uh, as well as on the, the sort of the full curriculum side, have made great resources free to parents and school districts. Uh, and so I, I suspect you're seeing some schools not do something, but the parents are pulling it in and unequal mixes and all the rest. So I just, I, it's very hard to generalize right now. I just think you see an unbelievable amount of uh, variation in the response. And in some cases, some really innovative uh, approaches by teachers on the ground. And in some cases, some really rotten reactions uh, from uh, the folks in the state or district leadership, in my opinion. Well, my granddaughter uh, is seeing her teacher once a day for one hour in a Zoom-like setting. And then uh, apparently the teacher then has tutorials with uh, each child twice a week for a period of time. Uh, would you, is that, do you think that's on the high end of intervention by the school or is that about where you think the average effort is at this point? I mean, the teachers are still all on the payroll. You can ask yeah. them to do things. Yeah, totally. My, you know, my sense is um, from an online perspective, that's probably on the, uh, sort of 80% uh, part of the curve, if you will, uh, in terms of on, on how far they're using online. Because again, we're seeing a lot of quote unquote remote learning responses where they're using paper-based materials or distributing uh, worksheets and things of that nature, not counting on the students to have online connectivity. And then you're having some schools that are leveraging tools uh, constantly. I think the most, uh, interesting responses are similar, it seems, to what, to what your family is uh, experiencing, which is synchronous connectivity and touch points where you can reestablish community and emotional bonds and the opportunity to actually have a conversation, both in a group setting, but then individual one-on-one -on -one check-ins, both to talk about academics, I suspect, but also, you know, frankly, is your foundation in place from a social emotional perspective health perspective to be able to think about continuity of learning and then using a robust set of online resources to engage in a variety of projects. By the same token, just to sort of put my own thought about here, I do think it's worth teachers also stepping back and saying, what are our first principles? What do we really hope uh, that students can know and can be able to do by the end of this? And what's the best way to leverage the home environment toward that end? Uh, so I don't disparage anyone who has a different response, but it sounds to me like from, from what I'm seeing at least that what you just described is on the more uh, uh, thoughtful and uh, uh, more online set of uh, responses that I'm at least seeing at the moment. So you think a lot of um, teachers and schools are just sending materials home? What are, are they mailing it to the kids or, or, or what are yeah, they I think. Yeah, you're seeing some mail efforts, you're seeing email efforts uh, where you can download, but you don't have to have connectivity. I mean, one of the interesting things is I might have connectivity in my family's home, but there might be three kids and there's only one computer for them. So what do we do and how do we split the time, right? There's all these sort of unintended consequences that people haven't thought about or counted in the statistics that make the logistics side of this very complex. What I've seen a lot of schools do is use the last couple of weeks as an extended spring break to just get their house in order and figure out what are we going to do. And so I think actually, in some ways, we feel like this has been going on two or three weeks and it feels like an eternity uh, from, from many of our perspective. Uh, but I think for some districts, they're now actually just getting into their plan uh, and starting to learn from what, what, you know, what it's like and so forth. 
I think the really interesting question is also, as they think about the fall, it's unclear to me that uh, kids will be in at least full-time by then either. And so they must be parallel planning in the sense that they're planning for a reality of when students will show up, but with a wide variety of exposure to the learning uh, and to your point, significant loss of learning in some cases. Uh, and I suspect highly unequal also based on the resources at, at, at the uh, family's disposal and the like. And how do you accommodate all of that on the one hand? And then on the other hand, a world in which this virtual or remote learning could continue for the foreseeable future. And how do you start planning for that? Because they just don't know right now. So I think the most well, thoughtful- but maybe we should, we should, maybe the schools are, maybe the family already has been doing a lot of the educating of our children. Maybe we won't see such a big change. I mean, all of this, you know, is predicated on the notion that kids are mainly learning inside the classroom at school, but they may have been learning a lot at home. And we're indeed, one should expect that the social divide increases just because yes. you would expect that the families with resources would be using those resources to educate their child, maybe now more than ever before, but maybe it's always been that way and maybe it's going to continue that way, but maybe this thing is not gonna be quite as dramatic as it might first seem. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. I think what you will see is that there might not be alignment uh, toward the learning standards that a state has spelled out, right? And so you'll continue to see learning occur, but it might not be in what the district expects uh, to see, uh, per perhaps, or at least in terms of exposure uh, to the content, if not learning, right? Uh, might not be there in the same dosages. I do think there's questions around coherence of curriculum uh, and things of that nature. I know, uh, you know, our, our colleague Mike Petrilli, it seems like he's doing a variety of videos and things of that nature for his kids. Are they connected such that what you're doing in science reinforces social studies? Well, interesting question, but not clear that traditional school actually has a lot of coherence across the curriculum either. Uh, so there's all these questions that I think are interesting philosophically. And then you think about the reality and they're actually maybe not that different to your point. So, so I, I, I do think there is that reality. I, I, I can see it more in mathematics where you sort of have a well-defined right. curriculum. And if you're not going to learn your fractions this year, then how are you going to learn your decimals next year or whatever order that's it's right. supposed to be in? Yeah, I think that's right. Mathematics, I think, is where we'll see, except those districts that actually invest in and it's interesting, I sent my local superintendent, you know, I said, look, I, I love the fact that you're doing deeper projects with this time and doing this, this and that. But for the, you know, but on math is the one place where I might say, hey, let's actually invest in putting a really strong online resource uh, for every single student to make sure that they are able to continue to progress uh, in their mathematics, because that's something that could really fall off the cliff, I suspect, if, if, if we're not careful about it. Well, there's an op-ed piece that just appeared in the Wall Street Journal uh, this morning, which said something to the effect that people are going to find homeschooling is the way to go. Maybe not everybody, uh, but there's more people than ever before are going to find this, that their kids are learning more when they're at home than they are when they're at school, and maybe this is all just fine with them. So... Um, of course, he's a homeschooler himself. Already, right? He's a very right. sophisticated homeschooler, but nonetheless a homeschooler. So is this wishful thinking on his part? 
I, I, look, I think, well, let's say it this way, because I mean, my wife and I are asking this question, right? I mean, we've got two kids now at home that we're homeschooling. I, I was on duty until about an hour ago uh, as the teacher. Uh, and, uh, uh, and we do look at each other occasionally and say, this isn't as hard as we thought it might be. Um, by the same token, our entire reality is different. I'm not traveling, right? And things of that nature. And so the moment I think you start to introduce those complexities back in, most of the families are going to be desperate and thrilled that school is back from a custodial uh, perspective uh, for their children. But I suspect, you know, at the margins, there will be those who say, hey, this actually isn't so bad. They're learning more. And, and to your point, what, what I've heard from a lot of homeschooling families is the moment you leave traditional school, you realize how much time is uh, wasted in the negative way or charitably, I guess, used toward classroom management and transition activities as opposed to actual learning and how much more efficient you can be and then how much more that opens up for uh, children to be doing you know, deep exploration of projects or be spending time outdoors or whatever it might be uh, that uh, you know, gets lost often in, in, in today's society. Yeah, so you can become a sports star and still do that learning online uh, at home uh, and uh, get all your exercise in the most of the day and then the few hours left over, do your homework and yeah, exactly. the rest of them, right? Exactly, right? <laughs> so, so this is, the other side of the coin is, are people going to become more comfortable with technology? I mean, I actually learned how to use Zoom. Uh, this is a big new adventure for me, uh, but it must be for many, many people, uh, this ability to communicate uh, in ways they haven't in the past. Uh, and is that gonna be transformative? No question that people are gearing up on resources that they would never have touched before and all of a sudden uh, are, are seeing what is out there that maybe they didn't realize. I think there's two impacts of that. The first is there will be some blowback against those resources. They won't have been trained. It'll be hastily done. They'll say, never again, I'm not using that. That was terrible. I had a class of 30 students, all of whom were trying to talk at the same time, and I didn't know how to mute them all, and it was a total disaster, right? Total train wreck. I'm never doing that again. And again, a set of people will start to say, and holy smokes, I can do X, Y, and Z in ways that I never realized. What if I put that into the classroom in an interesting way to start personalizing? I mean, you know, your granddaughter, right, all of a sudden is getting a one-on-one -on -one tutorial twice a week. Well, what if we actually built that into the school day itself and rethought how we use time in, uh, in, in the classroom and use technology tools to change some of these relationships and how we use time uh, and space? I, I think, you know, again, it's not going to be every teacher. There will be blowbacks and quarters, in my opinion, but there will be a sub subset of them that say, whoa, that was not what I thought it was. How can I now uh, create a much more thoughtful experience, leveraging some of these tricks of the trade uh, that I never thought I would learn? So, Michael, I have to ask you about the college world, too, because that, too, has been transformed in a dramatic way. Uh, Harvard is... is trying to soldier on. Is that the story across the country that they're pretending that they're offering the same set of uh, activities? And uh, because at the same time, Harvard yeah. says, we're gonna do this on a pass-fail basis because we can't expect you to learn anything uh, given <laughs> the fact that we, so they're having it both ways, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. You know, look, higher ed is more of a market than K-12, right? And so they need to justify the tuition that they're receiving. And so 
as opposed to K-12, where you're seeing districts take just, a, like we talked about, a total range of responses from, sorry, school's over, we're doing nothing, to really aggressive, you know, set of planning and continuity of learning uh, through a variety of mechanisms. Higher ed, I think it's fair to say, is almost all saying, how do we do remote learning? We've got to do this because we have to justify the tuition. And if we have to start sending cash back uh, at a time when our cash balances start to, you know, they get start to get low, right? Uh, around this time in particular. Oh, it's, in it's summer, a big deal. Endowments are, deal. Uh, the, the endowment has fallen. The uh, gifts are falling. Uh, oh, the, it's, a, it's a huge deal and forget about like enrollment's going to be down for many colleges in the fall uh, because families can't afford to send their kids next year. I mean, this is going to have a kids oh, are going to take a, a gap huge a year, I think you have pointed out. Uh, this yep. is going to have a dramatic effect on, on colleges uh, financially. That's exactly right. And so colleges cannot afford to give back that cash already most of, not most of them, many of them are starting to prorate the room and board part of the uh, cash that they bring in and returning checks back. If they also have to do tuition, that is going to be a huge hit uh, for a lot of schools. Those who are tuition dependent and do not have large endowments, that would send them under, right? You, I mean, you're going to have more college closures and already we've seen three or four hit in the last week. Uh, you're going to have many more if uh, rapidly if you start going there. So they need to figure out ways. My own sense is that families will be sympathetic or empathetic uh, for you know the remaining weeks of the semester and say, yeah, it's not the Harvard experience, but we'll let it go because just none of us saw this. If we hit the fall though, and again, you're not allowed to come to campus and I'm charging $50,000 say for tuition, and you think that approximates the experience of me connecting with my classmates and cl and clubs and oh yeah there's classes too i i just think parents are going to say uh-uh that's not you know th this is not the experience that's worth fifty thousand dollars and then you'll start to see a lot of them to your point look at gap years they will look at native online programs right that actually know how to do online learning well and far more affordably uh and i think you'll see some massive uh disruption uh, start to occur in higher ed if this starts to stretch on and colleges do not get creative with those delivery models at lower price points. So you really see September as the, as the critical month. Uh, that if, that's they, right. if, thing, if this virus is not under control, if society doesn't say we're going to put up with whatever deaths are going to occur uh, and we're going to get back to business, um, if they decide to not do that, the implications for education are going to be vastly greater than otherwise. I think that's exactly right. It's all around the fall. There's a lot of colleges already on the precipice. Uh, some of them will get pushed over. And frankly, even if they all report, there is going to be softness to your point because of the recession. Families will not be able to afford some of these price tags uh, come the fall. And colleges will not have the same financial aid budgets. So there will be lower yield, I expect, uh, at many campuses. And that will send many who are already teetering on the brink, brink under. Uh, already a scholar uh, who wrote an entire book around this question, who was considerably uh, less pessimistic uh, than myself and Clay Christensen uh, uh, before he passed around how many schools would go under uh, or suffer failures uh, in the years ahead. He said, before he said 10% uh, in the college stress test, he thought were at severe risk. Now he says 20%. So you're seeing a doubling just because of this confluence of events. So um, 
I suppose the, the, the other thing we should consider is the fact that will the political leadership of the country be willing to go into September? Or will they find a way of saying, you know what, we need to isolate our elderly, we need to make sure we take care of the very sick or those who have pre-existing conditions. We wanna make sure that we identify them, that we isolate them, that we protect them, but we've gotta to return to, uh, things gotta go back to normal. We just cannot tolerate that. Yep. Somehow in the back of my mind, I say that mood is going to become increasingly articulated over this next few months. I suspect that's right. And already in China, right, we've seen people going back to uh, life as it was before to a certain degrees. Uh, John Bailey, of course, speculates what we might have is people returning to campus, schools, et cetera, but uh, occasional 14-day you know, periods where there's a cancellation or, 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 or sort of rolling closures, if you will, to abate certain outbreaks in certain specific regions as opposed to a blanket policy. I think that's absolutely possible. K-12, that means, you know, we'll just have to keep innovating and build off of what we learned. Higher ed, I think a lot of families will say, that's great, you go have your, your social experiment around that. We're not part of it, we're opting out. Uh, and that's where the softness yeah. will occur. Well, listen, this has been uh, a very informative and thoughtful uh, conversation, uh, Michael. Thank you for sharing the insights and understanding you have because this is an unprecedented experience and it's really hard to make sense of it when you're right in the middle of it. So thank you for joining me today on the Education Exchange. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. So this is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. I've been speaking with Michael Horn, Distinguished Fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.